Welcome to episode nine of Kept Secrets. I'm your host, Nikki Rothrock. This podcast is a way that I try and help anyone who has experienced childhood trauma. The title of today's podcast is Putting the Blame Where It Should Be, My Aha Moment. Just want to welcome you back. I appreciate you sticking it out and coming back to episode nine. I can't believe I've done nine of these. Um, This journal entry or this blog entry was something that was written in 2012. Um, some of this material I've already covered, but it's part of it. So I wanted to go ahead and just read the whole thing. So here we go. My aha moment. Looking back at the time I spent working on my mental health treatment because of the horrific abuse I suffered from the time I was at my earliest memory, six years old until I was 15, I feel pretty ripped off. Being a young girl and being continuously manipulated and tortured every day is not usually anyone's idea of a decent childhood, right? I spent many years feeling guilt for what Tom did to me. I used to say that it wasn't really abuse because he told me he loved me. I felt sorry for him because he was the one who had to go to prison, not me. It, he was the one who has to have a lifetime notification on the Indiana Sex Offender Registry as a child molester, not me. Tom is the one who no one seems to really love. In 2005, I started struggling a lot with things in my life. I had spent only a couple of years working with Beth in the mid-1990s. I knew I couldn't afford her therapy sessions, so when things got bad enough for me, I would go looking for someone else to help me the way that she did. Most of the time, I left feeling empty-handed and worse off than I did before I went to see the new therapist. After a few attempts at trying to find someone to replace Beth, I gave up. I was tired of repeating my story to each therapist, only for them not to fully get where I was coming from. Not that I felt judged by them or anything, but I just didn't feel like they could help me the way that Beth did in the short amount of time that we worked together years before. So in 2005, I went in search of Beth again because things were just piling up for me on the inside. I finally found her and made an appointment. At the time, I had health insurance, so that helped with paying the bill. When Beth and I reconnected, she asked me why I reached out to her. I told her it was because no one else could help me the way that she did. I knew things were not right within me and I needed her help. So The work began that day. We spent one hour a week together for many months working on and through a lot of my biggest issues. We talked a lot about Tom and how much I missed him and how confused I was that I felt that way. She would be firm with me when I would feel angry about my feelings. She would say, now Nikki, you know you have to stop discounting your feelings so much. You felt for Tom, what you felt for Tom was very real. It was his wrongdoing, not yours. It took a long time for me to acknowledge that that's where my anxiety was coming from. Good and bad feelings colliding in my brain and causing a huge monsoon of emotions and physiological responses that I just didn't understand. So during my time with Beth, she taught me a lot. We worked on how I could relax and enjoy my life in the midst of all of the anxiety and recurrent depression along with the frequent, almost daily PTSD flashbacks. 
during one session, she asked me to make a couple lists for her. One list was how I see the signs of childhood sexual abuse and neglect, and the other being the dreaded list of all of my perpetrators. So that week, I drove to the graveyard where Evan was buried and made both lists on my lunch hour. I used to work close to the graveyard and would go there regularly for walks or to journal on my lunch hour. It was a peaceful place, and it was close to work. When I was early, when I was early on in my treatment with Beth, I would often go to that graveyard to feel close to Evan when I felt like I had no one else in the world. I felt like he was there in a spiritual form and I could see and hear all the things, he could see and hear all the things I was going through. I know that sounds strange, but it was how I coped a lot in my teen years. During this particular lunch hour, I sat in my car and quickly ate my lunch before I started the lists. I said a prayer and I took out my notebook and the list grew one by one. The first abusive incident that I could remember started at the age of six. I tried to remember anyone who made me feel uncomfortable in a sexual way throughout my life. When I made the list, I was 23 years old. By the time the list was finished, there were 21 different men on it. 21. All the incidents happened between the ages of 6 and 17. I sat there looking at the list and my heart hurt. I wondered what was so wrong with me that the men felt like they had to use me and abuse me in all the ways that they did. There were family members, friends and family members of Tom's, and guys I barely knew on the list. The truth was sickening. So a few short days later, I went to see Beth. She had, she had a look of shock on her face when she saw my completed list. It was that day that we started going through the list one by one, how I knew the men and what they did to me and how I felt it was abusive. <clears throat> Beth and I talked about the abuse. <laughs> no, Beth and I talked about the absence of my parents and how my mom trusted people to stay in our home with me and my, bro- my little brother. Little did my mom know the men who were staying with us were mostly abusive to me. A lot of the guys were friends of Tom's and were involved in the racing crowd. They would all stay upstairs in the spare bedroom directly next to my room that didn't have a door or any privacy. As an adult, I became angry with my mother for being, for being so careless with who she trusted. She was rarely home, and when she was, she was sleeping or getting ready to leave again. At one time, I remember our house being full of Tom's friends and Tom being so active. No, and Tom being as active as ever in abusive episodes toward me. I still don't understand how no one saw anything wrong with Tom's behavior toward me, but I'm more confused that no one saw my behavior toward Tom to be strange. I was always around him. If he was in the garage, I was in there with him. He wanted me around him. He tried to teach me about boy things like different parts of race car engines and how to bleed brakes and how to paint cars and even went as far to tell me that one day he would build me a race car of my own. I chuckle now 
when I think about that because I really did believe him. When we were in the garage, it was just the two of us. To this day, when I smell the odor of gasoline and oil, I think of Tom. When I smell fresh paint, I think of him too. Okay, back to my session with Beth and when I had a life-changing light bulb moment. After Beth and I went through the list, she sat in front of me and with the kindest words tried to comfort me. Sadly, I didn't feel I needed comforting. I was okay, or so I thought. If you have ever wondered what it's like to experience a PTSD flashback, I'm about to tell you one of the more crippling ones that I experienced right in front of Beth's eyes. It was rare for me to have this kind of physiological reaction during our sessions. I always felt safe with Beth and worked really hard to process each and every session's material. During the session, when we talked about John's attack, I had a pretty bad attack of my own. Beth and I were talking about the attack and what I remembered. Sadly, I have a very vivid memory, and I can remember almost each moment in detail of the attack still. So, when I was explaining to her that I heard the bell in the front door, I instantly froze. My eyes locked on the picture behind Beth's head, and my body became motionless. I could hear Beth speaking to me, but in my mind, all I could see and feel was the attack all over again. I just stared at the picture behind Beth, my eyes widening with fear. I could hear Beth saying, Nikki, are you with me? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? I couldn't open my mouth and talk. I felt the intense fear of the attack. I could hear the bell ringing over and over again and felt the fear of that second when I knew that John was coming for me. Still staring at the picture behind Beth, my eyes filled with tears and I broke the trance I was in. I just looked at her sympathetic face and started crying. During those few seconds, I just relived the entire attack in my mind. The clothes being torn off of my 12-year-old body and the words John spoke to me during the attack. But mostly, all I could feel was fear. 11 years after the attack by John, and I still felt terrified of this man. Beth, Beth helped reel me back into reality and kept repeating, Nikki, you are safe here. That happened a long time ago. You are safe and he can't hurt you now. That was a changing moment in my treatment because Beth helped me to understand the flashbacks will always be a part of my life. She taught me how to get back to reality and allow myself to process and feel the pain, but not let it cripple my daily life. That afternoon, I went back to work after our session. I cried the entire way back to the office. When I got to work, I was still crying. After about two hours, I was still crying, and my boss asked me if I needed to call Beth and talk to her. Clearly, I had something going on inside of me and needed to finish the process. I left work and called Beth. I cried the entire way back to her office. She was still seeing other patients and I couldn't, and couldn't see me that day, but she did call me. I was sitting outside of her office in my car. She said that she was afraid when I left that we hadn't had enough time for me to get back to reality from the PTSD attack. So she talked to me a little bit longer and helped me calm down. The tears were still from fear. I was scared of John and scared that he would come find me again as a 23-year-old woman. I was giving him that power. After that day, I took a little bit more of the power back with each and every therapy session.
You probably think that my light bulb moment was then, huh? Well, it wasn't. The real light bulb moment occurred not long after the one I just spoke about. The real moment had to do with Tom and my self-blame for his actions. Early on in my treatment with Beth, she and I talked about how I felt responsible for what Tom did to me. I told her that there were many times over the six years of abuse that I went to him expressing that I wanted to have sex with him. She would tell me repeatedly, Nikki, you were just a child. Tom conditioned you to act like that. I don't care if you were 16 years old standing in front of him naked and begged him to have sex with you. The fact is he is the adult and he chose to take advantage of you. That kind of talk, talk from Beth was consistent over the years that we spent in treatment together, but I still never fully got what she was saying until the afternoon I'm about to tell you about. It was a spring afternoon session, and I had been seeing her again for a little over a year or so. Every single Monday afternoon at 12.45 p.m., I was in her office eagerly waiting to push forward on working through my experienced trauma. On this particular day, I was overcome with guilt about Tom being sent to prison for four years because of me. I kept saying, he isn't the only one who wanted it, you know. And she became firm, yet gentle, in her words with me, and asked me to imagine a little girl who I knew at the time. I really didn't have a lot of children in my life, but there was a friend who I went to high school with who had given birth to a beautiful baby girl our sophomore year. I was very fond of this little girl, but had recently lost contact with her because of my busy schedule with work, school, and therapy. Anyway, I imagine Katie, the little girl. Beth asked me, imagine Katie Katie is having a relationship with a man similar to Tom. Imagine that he is taking advantage of her every single day. I want you to look at her and see her sadness. Do you think that she deserves what he's doing to her? I looked at her with sickness in my gut. Stop. I looked at her with sickness in my gut. Of course I don't think it's her fault. Archie, stop. Stop. Sorry. Of course I don't think it's her fault. The guy is using her. I became angry and still tried to go along with Beth's game. I said, I'm sad for her. And that she feels like it's her fault when it's clearly not. Beth, sitting in front of me in her high-backed black office chair, put her hands on her knees and she wheeled closer to me. With her eyes filling up with tears, she asked me, Why do you blame yourself for what Tom has done to you? The light bulb went off. I tilted my head and became emotional. I don't know why I blame myself. She was sitting there looking at me as I started to cry. In that moment, I felt like a million pounds of guilt had been lifted off my shoulders. It was truly a life-changing moment in my life. After many years of feeling responsible for what Tom had done to me, I saw it from someone else's perspective, and that perspective was powerful. I compared that moment to the moments after I accepted Christ as my Savior. I knew something big had just happened, but I wasn't sure what was going to come of it. I felt relief and a little healing. The process of my treatment went into turbo mode after that. I saw Beth each Monday afternoon, and we talked about various things. We talked about where I wanted to go in life and how I was going to get there. 
We worked on my relationship with my mom and my brother. Just because I started to put the blame back on Tom didn't make my future session future sessions any easier. But I wasn't so hard on myself after that day. Now, I just struggle with the confusion and the heartbreaking life that I had to live without the abuse. I'm at work, or I'm a work in progress, but I have great tools to get me where I need to go. And I just hope it doesn't take much longer. Okay, so that's all of the journal entry. So whew, that one kind of took me back a little bit, and I'm not really sure why, but when I was talking about the, um, the, the PTSD flashback that I was having in Beth's office about John, um, that day was, was rough because I don't know anything else that is this other than the Andy Griffith show <laughs> and the, the intro to the show that can make me stop in my tracks like that bell. The sound of that bell was, oh shit, he's coming at me. So to give you a little bit more information about the attack without going into too much detail, that particular Saturday morning, I was, um, I was doing housework around the house. And I think I've talked about this stuff with you in other podcasts briefly. But I, um, I was doing, I was vacuuming the floor and I still had my pajamas on because it was like 11 in the morning and nobody was home. And I was like, I got chores to do. I'm just going to do my, in my pajamas and I'm going to take a shower. So I was, I was standing in the living room and somebody knocked on the door. So I barely opened the door, you know, just kind of poked my head out the door. And I was like, hi. And it was John. And he's like, is Tom here? And I said, no, he is fishing with my brother. He'll be back in a little while. He's like, okay, I'll come back later. So he shuts the door or I shut the door and he leaves. I think, I thought. So moments later, I heard that ding, ding, ding from the doorbell that showed that the door was open and I stopped for the in a moment and I looked at through the door and here he came he was running at me he chased me through the living room through the dining room into the kitchen cornered me back by the door the whole time he was just pawing at me and I was like get away from me get away from me like you know and I was 12 so but at that time I had also been going through daily episodes with Tom. So I knew in my gut what he was doing. And I thought, man, if I, if I do this, if I let him do this, Tom is going to be so pissed at me. So I ran. Hang on just a second. These dogs... Don't understand that I'm busy. We have a little uh, groundhog in our backyard. And Archie likes to go back there and torment him. But anyway, I'm sorry. So, I, in my mind, if, if I let John um, 
in my own way. If I let him have sex with me at that time, I felt like I was betraying Tom. And the fact that, the fact that John, he got me, you know, I got, I got through, I came back through from the kitchen into the dining room and somehow I ended up on the floor. I don't know if I tripped, but at that time, um, he was able to pull my underclothes off. So then I ran up the stairs to my room and I shut the door and he punched my door. And to this day, there's probably still a hole in that door. (laughs) Not a big hole, just, you know, it just kind of came through the first layer of the door. At that time I had a, I had my own room because Tom had moved downstairs into the bedroom with my mother. So I got the bedroom upstairs that had a door that used to be Tom's room. So It was then that John got me on the floor. He pinned me down and he proceeded to have sex with me. And this is a trigger warning. I probably should have said that. I'm sorry. But during that time in Beth's office, every moment of this attack was playing in my brain. And it was like physically I I couldn't move. I was frozen and my, you know, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever been staring at something and you're just kind of in a trance and you can't, you can't snap out of it. That's what it felt like. But in my brain, it was so intense. And the main feeling that I had was fear. And I didn't realize that, you know, 11 years, even after that attack, that I was so scared of him. But I was, and after that day in in Beth's office, I was able to work through the fear and take my power back and not let him have that. So the town that I live in now, John lives about two very small rural towns south of me, and a couple summers ago... I was driving through his town because I have to go through his town to get to my town. And I saw him on a motorcycle. And instantly I was like, like, I can't believe that I'm like sitting next to him at this stoplight. And, you know, this was just a couple years ago. You know, I'm, I, it didn't bother me. It made me somewhat angry because I thought mother trucker like how dare him do that to a 12 year old you know like and I'm pretty confident I know for a fact there were two other girls in my neighborhood that he attacked pretty close to the day that he attacked me so unfortunately you know I was never able to press charges against him because I didn't tell anybody until I mean Tom knew but nobody else knew until my first session with, or my second session with Beth. And then that's when I went in to turn him in. But because there was no physical evidence, yada, yada, nothing happened. So processing that was difficult, but it can be done. It can be something that like the, the emotional scar that I've talked about that Beth used to bring up to me all the time. You know, you see 
you see a physical scar on your arm and it, it's just there. It doesn't hurt, but it's just there and you can see it. And it reminds you of the pain that you once went through. But you don't feel that pain now. So that's kind of where I am with that attack and that particular abuser or perpetrator. Um, I do want to make it 100% known that Ryan was not on that list. Okay. Ryan was a completely different story. Um, He was my boyfriend. He was, we were, you know, this was not a relationship that I had to hide from anyone. I didn't even hide it from Tom. (laughs) You know, I mean, Tom knew that we were together after he left because we would see each other at the bowling alley. So I never, ever thought of Ryan as an abuser. He was the one, just the complete opposite of that. He was good to me. He loved me. He was gentle. And yes, we did break up months, not even two full months after Tom went to prison. But I don't blame him for that. Because I was in super duper self-destructive mode. And after, after Ryan moved, after Ryan and I split up, Tom was in prison. All I had to deal with was myself. And I was, how, I was 17 at the time. And I didn't know what to do with it. I had no idea. So I was searching for people, people being men, I think. And, you know, those men just, they just took advantage. Hi, Archie dog. But those men clearly took advantage. And there were a few a year after Ryan and I split up. And I'm so glad (laughs) that I don't have to deal with that part of my life anymore. Because all I can say, I already gave you a treat, so calm down. Go. Go play. Sorry, he's going to get annoying now. But all I can say about that time was that I was just broken, 100% broken. My heart was broken. My spirit was broken. My soul was damaged. Um, I just didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. Um, Not very long after that is when I moved in with my biological father. And I thought, seriously, shh. I thought by leaving my mother's home and leaving the place that the abuse happened that everything would just go away. That did not happen. (laughs) That did not happen at all. I mean, it just almost intensified. Come on, Belle. Come on. Sorry, guys. These dogs are crazy. They have no idea when I'm sitting there talking to you guys. 
that they need to be quiet. <laughs> they don't. They don't know that. So, and Archie thinks he needs to get treats 100 times a day. Okay, back to my story. So, you better stop. <laughs> the PTSD flashback that I had in our office, there are other types of flashbacks that I've had over the years. Those being um, hearing a song and something just triggers a memory for me. So at that point, you know, maybe maybe my brain just changes a little bit. Like, it changes my thought process. I don't know why this dog won't stop. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. So... Other types of flashbacks, you know, I have been, I've been places and I've heard something and all of a sudden, boom, something happens, you know. And the weirdest thing for me is that I don't have these kind of attacks at the racetrack. I love going to the racetrack. I love going with my husband and, um... Yes, it it has been discussed in treatment that when I go to these tracks that I'm putting myself into the line of, or into the, what did she call it? The fire pit or stake pit, something like that, where basically I'm just asking to run into Tom or his friends there. Well, I have run into him. And actually, you know, there was one time that, so in the town that I live in, well, in the state that I live in, this one particular racetrack has this, this figure eight race. Okay. So the drivers, instead of going in an oval, they go in a figure eight. Okay. So once a year they have this race and it's three hours long. It's an enduro race. It is the Best day of the year for me. I absolutely love this race. So this one particular year, this was <clears throat> probably three or four years ago. I was so hyped up. I was there. My brother was there because my brother and I both love the racing, the racing scene or whatever. Skog. And my brother's girlfriend was with us. So... We're sitting there and all these people are coming. This place is packed, like so many people. And I'm looking and watching the people as they walk by. Down the, down the, the bleachers from me are my two stepsons and their mother, which at that time, um, she hated me. So I'm going <laughs> to take this dog outside. She hated me. So there was, that was awkward, you know, because... Um, just knowing that somebody that didn't like me was in the vicinity of me, I just didn't like it. So that was uncomfortable situation, number one. Number two, as I was watching the crowd pass me, as I was watching the crowd go by me, um, I saw someone who I knew. And it was Tom. And Tom was carrying a child, a little girl, 
no more than two and a half years old. Carrying her like the proud grandpa or whatever friend, child molester, whatever he was at the time to this child. But I watched him walk in front of me, walk in front of thousands of other people with this baby. Okay? I call her baby. She's two and a half. He goes up, you know, he's down around the curve where I was sitting, and I lost him in the crowd. And I was mad. I told my brother, I was like, he's here. I don't, I don't, I understand that he's here because this is a freaking fantastic race. I get it. What I don't get is why, why in the hell would any woman who knows his history let him even around her babies? I don't know. I, it was, so here's my thought process. And this could be considered, seriously, stop. I don't have anything for you. (laughs) Sorry. So this particular thing that I'm getting ready to tell you could be um, also another type of PTSD flashback. So what happened was I was sitting there and in my mind, I'm like, why is he around this little baby? Who is she? Who is this little baby? And in my mind, I was just really uncomfortable with it for obvious reasons, okay? So then, just out of the corner of my eye, I saw him come back the way he came, carrying this little girl. Oh my gosh, I about lost my damn mind. I looked at my brother and I was like, what's he doing? Why is he leaving with her? Where's, where are they going? And he's like, I don't know. I should go after him. And I was like, no, because then we'll get kicked out of the rice. And this is important too, you know, cause I, cause my brother has a very, very, very short fuse. So in my mind, he took this little baby back to the car and he did things to her. Nobody would know. Nobody knew when he was doing this stuff to me. And then he brings her back. And they continue to watch the race and life goes on. I could not let that out of, I couldn't let that thought go. Um, because I knew what he did. I knew what his ammo was or whatever they call it, his just the way he, he did things. And he would make people think that he was their best friend. He would get them to trust him. He would be around their children, and then he would, he would attack like a snake. So I don't remember who I talked to about that particular night. My dogs are going nuts. But that night was was a rough one for me because I lost him in the crowd when he came back. And I didn't know who he was there with other than this little girl. I know he was with other people 
because at that time, I believe he was remarried or going to be getting married. So I don't know. Very long story short, I have found out that this little girl was his current wife's granddaughter. And he acts like the proud grandpa. And I just don't see it. I pray for that baby that he doesn't touch her. He doesn't manipulate her. You know, I can't do anything about it. Because if I tried, I would look like a fool, you know? I would look like the the victim that just couldn't get over the, the past. Well, I think about that little girl a lot. And I wonder, you know, I just wonder if her, the little girl's mother and father or his wife understands how dangerous he is or he could be. So that's the kind of stuff that I deal with whenever I see him. Um, you know, I talked last week about (laughs) him sitting next to me at the racetrack and how I was just, I was fighting this internal dialogue with my inner child about not needing his approval and not needing him in our lives because we have our family that we, you know, we have my husband and my stepkids and you know, we have this family and we have our friends, people who genuinely love us. You know, we don't need to be with people who hurt us. So in saying that, I want, I want to give you the power to make that choice for yourself and for your inner child. You know, you deserve to be with people who love you. And if you can't find anybody that you feel like loves you, then put yourself in situations like, you know, go to a church, get involved with a church group. I'm not saying that church uh, goers are perfect. Um, We're all human. We all make mistakes. And I know that there's that stigma out there about, you know, abuse happening in churches. That is... That is just something that if you're, you know, the red flag, if you have that gut feeling that this is not the place for you, then go somewhere else. When I met Janet 23 years ago, (laughs) she had this, this aura of her of just, well, first of all, I wanted to be her friend because she looked really smart and she sat in the front row (laughs) And I needed somebody that could help me get through this damn math class. So, you know, I was seeking her out for my own selfishness. But in all honesty, that was, that was one of the most beautiful friendships I've ever had. Um, my friendship with Brooklyn, you know, it took her a little bit of time to understand early on in our relationship why if we would get into an argument and I would be like, please don't, don't leave. Don't, you know, don't take away your friendship. Well, I said that because anybody that I upset would either leave, meaning Tom, or they would take away their friendship. 
and I wouldn't even get a chance to defend myself. So early on, I don't think she quite understood what to do with that. And over the years, she and I had many, many, many conversations about, you know, things that happened in my life and why I felt the way that I did. The, you know, I don't feel like there's anything that I couldn't tell Brooklyn <laughs> other than sometimes maybe I sneak a cigarette now and then and I'm supposed to be a non-smoker. But she only doesn't, she makes me feel like she doesn't like that, but only because she loves me. And, you know, you don't want your best friend doing something that is not good for them. So I get that. Finding people that love you is not easy. But when you find the right people, you will see and understand how dysfunctional the people who have hurt you are. And you will need them less and less in your life. And then the next thing you know, the people who surround you are people who love you. Now, for myself, um, it took a, a little while for me to get that feeling with Janet. But, you know, she was just so good. She was just such a good person. Um, gentle and caring and sympathetic and empathetic and, you know... I've said this before, the world is at a disadvantage because she's not here. So that being said, you know, there are family members who maybe I don't spend as much time with because, you know, maybe something has been said or, you know, a behavior has happened and I just, it doesn't make me feel very good about it, so... You know, you just kind of think about it and you're like, eh, I don't really need that. So, you know, I'll see you at Christmas or whatever. And it could be, it could be any family member, you know, there's not anybody in particular that I'm talking about. But, um, I'm, one other thing I wanted to talk about was the aha moment, putting the blame where it deserves to go. When I finally made that connection and understanding that Tom is the sick person who abused me, I did not abuse him. And I I struggled really, really badly with the guilt because I did go to him at some point, you know, like, I don't know, it was definitely not the last year that he was in our lives, but maybe before that, you know, I would go to him because I learned that if things, if I did things for him, then a lot of times I would get to do things that I wanted. So for example, um, if I showed extra interest in him and I wanted a friend to come over or I wanted to go to the movies or something, um, I could use that as a bargaining tool. That's so horrible to say that out loud. But the, the way he conditioned me 
was to think that way. Because he rewarded things, you know, when I would do them. You know, I, uh, not all the time, though. I mean, it was just, I, w- I would know his mood. And I would know when um, I could use it to my advantage. And I absolutely hate that. I, ugh. So, the aha moment. If you are carrying around guilt because someone has hurt you, you know, they've, it's been sexual abuse, it's been physical abuse or neglect, put the blame where it goes. If it was someone who violated you, you have absolutely no reason to blame yourself for that. And I often, when I've talked to other people who have been, who are survivors of abuse and they've self-blamed a lot, I use that situation or that example that Beth used with me. And I try to be with them in the moment so that they know, you know, I'm going to follow them, follow, go with them through this thought process. And a couple people have made the connection and they're like, huh, <laughs> you know, that's pretty cool. Um, and Seeing that weight lifted off of them has was pretty amazing. And I just hope that you, whoever is listening, understands that the world is a shitty place <laughs> and bad things do happen to good people. But it's up to us as a survivor to pick ourselves up off of the floor, dust ourselves off, and move forward. And by that, I mean work through the trauma in a healthy way and push forward in your life. You know, I didn't know that I could go to college, and I did. I spent a lot of money going to college, and... You know, I may not be in the career choice that I wanted. Um, But I tell you, that stuff stuck with me. The stuff that I learned. the, The ways that I wanted to help other people. And that is why I'm talking to you now. Because I didn't want to just let it all go. You know, it was kind of, it's kind of like paying it forward because Beth, was she is so good at her job. That, you know, if, if I like, you know, when I think about her, I think about all of the patients that she would be seeing in her career. And I think that if at least half of them got out of their sessions what I did, then this world would be, is so much better off. Because... It makes me so angry to think about adults who use children in bad ways. You know, whether it be trafficking, sexual abuse, neglecting them for their own selfish things, you know, drug addicts. I'm not condemning drug addicts. What I'm saying is if you know you have a problem, get help and take care of your children. Um, I don't want anybody to take that the wrong way because... 
you know, it would be like if somebody had a gambling problem and they spent all of their money on gambling and didn't feed their children. It's the same thing. You know, you are spending all of your money and you are neglecting your children. These children depend on you and you're, you're hurting them. So it makes me angry, <laughs> but it makes me more sad to think about these children as adults thinking, one, that that life was okay because it wasn't. They deserved a lot more than that. Two, that it was their fault that this happened. And three, repeating the cycle. That makes me sad because it's up to you to stop the cycle, break it, and put the blame where it goes on the person that it goes to. Um, give yourself that freedom and, you know, look for something, look for something that you never thought was possible. Just think about it, you know, like I, when I met Beth, I was working at a gas station. Now I'm the financial manager of a very large company. No, I don't have a master's degree. (laughs) I don't have a PhD. At one time I wanted those, but I don't need them for the position that I have. And this position, I, I enjoy this job. I love the people that I work with. Um, my department is badass, (laughs) you know, so I just, um, I never, at the age of 17 or whatever, when I had met Beth, 16, I never thought I would be here. I'm happily married. I'm so happy that I'm married to my person. Um, you know, you just have to find something and work toward it. But at the same time, work through the old stuff. It is possible. I promise it is possible. As soon as you find the right person to be your teammate on that, excuse me, you will be surprised how great it will be. So that is kind of all that I have. I'm almost out of time. So I'm sorry if I went on a rant about anything, but I hope that you learned a little bit of something about flashbacks and uh, kind of working through them. Um, Also, putting the blame where it goes. Just remember that this week. If you feel guilt for something that someone else did to you, put that back on them. Free yourself from that guilt because guilt is something that we put on ourselves. And... A lot of times it's because we don't feel like we can do something to change it. Maybe. I'm not sure. But this week, just give yourself grace or show yourself grace and put the blame where it goes. If you have to write a little post-it note and put it in your planner or in your Bible or on your dashboard of your car, on your mirror in your bathroom, put the blame where it goes. That's all. So I will be back next week with another episode. I'm not exactly sure what that's going to be like because 
or be about because this is a game time decision for me just about every week. Um, don't forget that I have a group on Facebook called Kept Secrets. Um, it's a podcast about overcoming child sexual abuse or trauma. Um, you can always message me on there too. If, if you have something that you want me to cover in an episode, I'm happy to do that. I have a very long list of things that I want to cover in the future. So I hope that you'll keep coming back next week is my 10th episode. I'm so excited about that. Um, have a great week and make good choices. Till next time. Welcome to episode 10 of Kept Secrets. I'm your host, Nikki Rothrock. This podcast is a way that I try and help anyone who has experienced childhood trauma. Today is episode 10, and this will wrap up season one of Kept Secrets. So tonight, I had a really hard time trying to figure out what I wanted to discuss because, you know, you just kind of had a rough day at work and I just wasn't really in the mindset. But after talking to a couple listeners and um, kind of taking a minute to like reel my mental health back in today, um, I decided to talk about 10 ways to heal. And this list comes out of psychology today. There's obviously 10 things on the list and I'm just going to kind of go through it and talk about what I experienced during each one of these things. So I'll go one by one and then this is just going to be kind of a mini episode to wrap up the first season. So I plan on coming back after the holidays. I have, you know, we have Thanksgiving and Christmas and before Christmas I have a vacation that I'll be going on with my husband and stepsons. So I want to kind of put focus on that and kind of live in the moment. So I hope that you understand, but I'm super excited to come back at the first of the year and see where we are. Hopefully I can find those blasted journals that I've been looking for. Um, Okay, so 10 ways to heal according to psychology today. Number one, acknowledge what happened. In my case, I had to come to the realization that when I was having these out, like, what was I trying to say? I had, I had these moments of acting out when I was a teenager and even in my early twenties, um, you know, just kind of willy nilly with things, don't really pay attention to consequences, stuff like that. And I don't remember exactly what made me stop and realize. Now I'm sure some of it had to do with, um, seeking my own spiritual path. And realizing that the the path that I was on was not exactly a healthy one. And so I had to stop and think about it. And, and I had to think about things that Beth and I had worked on years before when I was in my early teens. And then just kind of realizing that my acting out had a lot to do with being hurt and you could probably relate to that because when someone is hurt, they typically get defensive. They get angry. Um, they tend to do things that might self-harm. You know, maybe they turn to drugs or alcohol a little bit more than 
someone who might just be a social drinker, um, they may turn to maybe a promiscuous lifestyle. I'm kind of guilty of that. I hate admitting that. But, you know, that's my truth. So in my late teens and early 20s, um, very like my first year in my 20s, because I think I was like 21 or 22 when I decided, you know, I kind of need to grow up a little bit and not act like a fool all the time and do things that are stupid. Um, I got tired of feeling just, I can't even explain that feeling of just broken. Nobody loves me. Nobody's going to understand me. Um, I was looking for that relationship with Ryan all over again after he and I broke up. No one could fill that void. And I just had to acknowledge, you know, I'm broken because people hurt me and abused me and used me and threw me away. So I acknowledge that. Um, I acknowledged it quite a bit in my mid-20s when I was working with Beth and came up with my list of um, 21 perpetrators. That's a little bit sobering as an adult, thinking of a, of a child or a teenager who just keeps getting hurt over and over again and misused. And I'm not... <laughs> I'm not 100% blaming the perpetrators because I was looking for something. I don't know what it was. I don't know exactly what it was other than love, attention, affection, and things like that. Things I was not getting in my life. Things I didn't get as a child. So acknowledging it and just being like, you know, it happened now what? <laughs> so the next thing kind of leads into my relationship with Beth and it's the psychotherapy. You know, you, you've got to change your way of thinking. You can't always be the victim. You can't always be, and some people might not be ready to hear that and that's okay, but you, you can't always be like, well, you know, Uncle Bill is, you know, it's his fault that I am the way that I am. Partially true, but you have to take responsibility for your own actions. And by getting some psychotherapy and understanding that you can change your thinking and you, with this cognitive behavioral therapy, you can, um, there's all kinds of, you can do spirituality therapy. Um, I was talking with a listener today who actually is someone I went to school with and she was talking about that EMDR treatment that, uh, is it eye, rapid eye movement or something like that? That stuff, I did talk to Beth about that recently. And that was not something that was available when I was going through treatment. Um, but my friend and the listener, she, she said that it really helps her identify triggers and helps with her anxiety. So you may try that. EMDR. <laughs> EM, rapid, or eye movement. I don't, I think that's what it is. I can't remember. I apologize for that, but so finding a way to work through your mental health and work through the thinking errors and the things and having someone who is educated enough that they can help you 
and they know, I mean, because a lot of times, you know, there are the rare occasions when it's not, but a lot of times our abuse is textbook abuse. And by that, I mean, we are acting out in a way that is clearly a textbook thing. It has been studied. It has been decided that these are things that are a side effect or a reason. The reason is because of the abuse. So that's what I mean when I say textbook. Um, I didn't know that a lot of my acting out as a teenager was because of the pain and the abuse and the trauma. But as an adult, I do know that. So um, we'll talk about that a couple in a couple more down because I think I can cover that a little bit better. Uh, so finding someone that you can work on your mental mental state and your mental well-being. So psychotherapy is typically the best way to go. You can do group therapy. You can do one-on-one therapy. Um, you can now for me personally, group therapy was a hell no. No way, Jose, was you going to get me into a group. I tried it um, in my early 20s, and I I liked the socialness of it, but I did not feel comfortable revealing all of the stuff that I was dealing with. So if you're looking for people to relate to, group therapy is great. Um, even a, a, a support group for people who have been through sexual trauma or Whatever your trauma is, you know, there are, there are support groups for that. You can find them at churches. You can just Google support groups in my area for X, Y, and Z, and a list will pop up. Most of the time they're at churches because the church lets the group use their facility. And it's usually sometimes at hospitals too. Okay. So group therapy, one-on-one psychotherapy, um, The next one is grief. This one was rough for me because I didn't realize that a lot of the stuff I was feeling was grief. Um, I, I mourned a lot of relationships with adults in my life. I mourned the relationship with my mother and the mother I wanted or I thought that I deserved. Um, I mourned the physical uh, the physical mother that i had um but grief i think in this this context is when you have been hurt there is just a sadness and just a deflated feeling hopeless feeling um you just feel like Nobody's going to understand what you have been through. And grieving the things that... I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. Grieving the things that you wished that you had or that you deserved. The the good things that you deserved. That's where I was in it. I had to grieve the childhood that I wanted. You know, like... In one of my blog entries, I talked about things that if I was Nikki's mother, the things that I would have done for her. And one thing was Saturday morning breakfast, pancakes, you know, made with mom and 
you know, tucking me in at night and having a bed that had clean sheets and clean, you know, clean towels in our bathroom and electricity all year round. And, you know, just, I grieved the fact that I didn't have a lot, but I, I also wasn't really wanting or needing anything at the time. I know that that sounds a little bit backwards, but you know, I did have food obviously because I was a very obese child it may not have been the most healthy of food, but I still ate. I did have shelter. It may not have been clean. It may not have been um, <laughs> heated, <laughs> but I did have shelter. I had a bed to sleep in. It may not have had sheets on it. I may have only had one pillow and one comforter that probably smelled like dog pee, but I had those. And... I didn't need anything more than that. I mean, sure, it would have been great <laughs> to have that stuff, but I'm I'm just saying that I did have them. Um I didn't have I didn't go to the doctor much. I didn't go to the dentist until I was like 18. And I went because I had a toothache and I had a tooth pulled. Now it was like a year and a half after that that I decided, oh, well, I have health insurance. I can go and get my teeth cleaned. I didn't know that was an option. I didn't know that the tooth that I had pulled could have just easily been filled. And then it would have saved my tooth. The surgeon said nothing. He just pulled the tooth because that was what I asked him to do. I had no idea because the neglect was so strong in that area that I didn't get to go to the dentist. Um, so as an adult, that's something that, you know, <laughs> I get a little honked off about it because I think, you know, it wasn't that difficult to take me to a, clin a clinic or something to get my teeth cleaned as a kid, but it wasn't a priority to my mom. I found out many years later that I had health insurance but mom never used it because my dad paid for it. Um, that was, that kind of pissed me off a little bit <laughs> because I was like, man, you know, I didn't go. I had to go as a kid to get my shots for school. But as an adult or an older child, I guess, not adult, but I went one time at the age of 16. I had a really bad feminine infection and I remember my mom going with me. The, um, the doctor was extremely judgmental toward my mother. And she was angry, not angry. But she was visibly disturbed at the fact that I had this infection because it was caused by an, um, an allergic reaction to something on a condom. It wasn't like the latex or whatever, but it was... It was like a a really bad yeast infection, I think. And the doctor asked my mom if she knew that I was sexually active. And my mom said, yeah. And that doctor was kind of pissed off at it. Like, just she didn't like my mom's answer. And so when we left there, my mom was so pissed off at me because she's like, I never want to feel like that again. And they, that lady completely judged me and I hate snooty people and yada, yada, yada. When in reality, 
I think that doctor saw some of the damage that I had because of my childhood trauma, not because I was sexually active with my boyfriend at the time, but she saw how damaged like my cervix was, things like that. So I had, talking about grief, like, you know, the neglect was just so, so strong, so bad that I didn't know that it was neglect until I was an adult. And I had to process that in a way that I'm like, you know, I had a really crappy childhood, but I made it through that and I'm an adult. And if I have a female infection, I go to the doctor. It's pretty cool. You know, I have health insurance. I go to the doctor. I can go to the dentist. I can, you know, I can go to the therapist if I need to, you know, um, things like that were not, not something on our radar as when I was a kid. And I, I kind of wish that it was because I think maybe the abuse had might have been found sooner. Um, so I had to grieve that. Um, and then grieving the loss of Tom. And by the loss of him, I mean the fact that he ripped himself out of our family and left me hanging there in this completely... There's kind of two different ways that he left. Like he left and I was like, thank freaking God he's gone. I can breathe and do what I want. I can talk to talk to Ryan and I can, you know, talk on the phone with people and not have him in the background. But then I also was grieving that um, that connection that I felt and that protection that I thought he, you know, the protection I thought he was offering to me when in reality that was so skewed and so wrong. Um, so that grief, you know, I had to grieve the, the thought of this little girl. I found, I found some pictures tonight. I was looking for my stupid journals (laughs) and I found a picture of me in, um, second grade and my hair was clean. My shirt didn't have a stain on it. I still had a little double chin. I had that thing since the day I was born, and I have a picture to prove it. Um, I just look at this picture, and I'm sad. You know, I grieve the fact that this little girl in this picture, this was before any sexual abuse. And then you skip ahead two years, and I see the picture of me in that. You know, I've, I've gained quite a bit of weight. My hair is clean, but it's horrible. Um, You know, I had lost my teeth and they were growing in and my glasses were too small for my round, chubby face. Um, The outfit I had on was an outfit that my stepmother bought for me. And this little girl, this is when the abuse started in my home before Tom. It was just... Um, it was with a family member and I probably shouldn't talk much about that one because I, I grew to love that person a lot and I had to make a decision in my life to either not have anything to do with this person or to forgive them 
and move past it. And I chose to forgive him and move past it. So grief is, it is part of this process. And there are five stages in grief. I learned this in high school. Remember DABDA, D-A-B-D-A. You've got denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. DABDA, D-A-B-D-A. Now, those five stages could come in many different forms. You can feel like you've accepted something and then all of a sudden you're feeling depressed about something. Or you are denying the fact that maybe something happened. Or, you know, a lot of times those five stages have to do with the, the death of someone. Or losing something when, in my case... Yes, I did go through grief and losing loved ones and friends and family, but I also had to go through those stages when I was working through the trauma. So um, I may do an episode on grief because I think that that's a really broad topic, but I think it could be discussed a little bit further. But number four is identifying your triggers. That one can be really hard when you honestly have no idea what the triggers are. So, for example, um, one that I've talked about quite often is the Andy Griffith show and the sound of the television and the whistling and in, in the show intro. So, I don't think I realized that that was a trigger for me until I was an adult. And I remembered that I hated the show. I hated I hate anything in black and white that is that has always been my I just don't like black and white shows. I don't like kid movies and I don't like black and white movies and um realizing that this show was playing in the background during the first summer of my sexual abuse with Tom it was on every single day. So I associated mentally that show and that sound, even the sound of Andy Griffith's voice. And that Barney Fife guy, what was his name? Don Knotts. He is also a trigger for me. So understanding that, okay, I hear this sound and I stop and I have a physiological response to it. My heart rate goes up. My breathing changes. Um, I I feel that gut feeling of ugh, like ick, like something ugh, like. And then as I got older, I was able to understand that I felt those feelings because that show was on in the background, and my brain associated those ugh feelings with that song. Or that intro to the show. So for a long time, like, I don't know if any of you guys even remember who Phil Donahue was. He was a talk show host back in the late 80s when this happened. Um, the midday shows were like Phil Donahue, Oprah Winfrey, Ricky Lake. Um, talk show was, they were bananas. Like, it was, it was a lot. Um, come here. Sorry, Archie's whining at me. So the talk shows, I didn't, I did not enjoy watching those as I got older. 
And I couldn't figure out why until I sat and I thought about it. So a lot of times, um, if those reruns come on or, you know, something's on TV or whatever, and it triggers me, I'm like, wait, I'm having a reaction. Why? Um, other triggers that I have are, um, smells. There's a a smell of gasoline and oil. Now, this one is a tricky one for me because it's a trigger because it reminds me of Tom and my younger years working in the garage with him. Not working, but I was in the garage with him while he was working. Paint. He was painting his race cars, things like that. So that trigger was... Something that it took me a minute. And I have to let the dogs out. You could sing it. Who let the dogs out? I did. Sorry, guys. Hopefully these two heathens will go outside and just hang out for a little bit. Go ahead. Pretty sure that Belle might have passed gas right in front of me. And it stinks. So... Anyway, so triggers the paint and the oil and the gasoline. Now, those are tricky for me because I do associate them with him, with Tom, but I also like those smells. So you guys know that I enjoy going to short track races in the summer. Well, each particular class of cars has their own unique smell based on the gas that they use. So the one car that I really like is the figure eight car. And that smell is different than the smell of exhaust fumes, you know, junky cars, stuff like that. It's different, but it's in the same category. So just the other day, I'm driving on the, down the street with my husband And some truck in front of me had the worst exhaust leak ever. And it was coming through our our, uh, air vent. And I was like, dude, that car stinks. But in my head, I, you know, I stopped and I thought, smells like the truck that we used to drive when I was a kid. But it It was literally a passing thought. That smell was a trigger. I identified it and I moved past it. No anxiety, nothing like that. It was just something that I was able to put with that. Another trigger, sound. There is a song that anytime I hear it, It was from the 90s, the early 90s by Brian Adams. A lot of people, it was one of those stupid love songs. Um, Anytime I hear it, I will literally stop in my tracks. And I have to remember in that moment, yes, this is a song that Tom used to tell me was, quote unquote, our song, part of the manipulation That's all it was. It was manipulation. The song is an okay song, but I don't have to listen to it. So I have this dialogue with myself. 
in my, my mind and I'm able to move past it. Now that has happened many times. Um, that song will come on. I don't even know why I have it on my, my iTunes account. I honestly don't know. But every once in a while, it'll be on shuffle in my car, and I'm like, Ugh! <laughs> and I'm like, I go past it because I don't want to. I don't want to feel that. But I know that that song is a trigger for me, so I don't want to feel it. I turn it, and I'm like, Yep, we're not doing that today, and we go on. So it's not like, it's not like I'm avoiding or, what is the word I'm looking for? Not avoiding. Um, hold on. It's, I don't remember what the word is. <laughs> it's, I'm not in denial. I know what it is. Shh. I know you get your treats. It's, it's just one of those things that I have to acknowledge and move past. So another sound, this one is a, this one is one that I don't hear very often now, which is good. But I don't have any more, buddy. Um, another, another sound is a squeaker toy. And it's annoying. <laughs> when I was young, I know that I've told you guys that I had some serious jealousy issues. Tom played me and my mother against each other. To me. I don't think he actually did it with my, like, played her against me, but he would say things to me to make me not trust my mom, things that would make me not like her. He went as far one time as to tell me that she was having a love affair with one of her friend's husbands and then proceeded to tell me how she was having this love affair and... I was like, I don't freaking care, you know? So anyway, the sound that I'm talking about is in the old homes that I lived in, the door lock, the little pop lock on the bedroom doors, where all you have to do is literally take like a screwdriver and poke it through the hole on the other side and it unlocks the door. That is a sound that to this day will stop me in my tracks and give me the willies. Because when I heard that door lock, that meant that mom and her husband, who is also my abuser, Tom, were in the bedroom and they were going to be intimate. And that would make me so sick and so angry just to this day. Hearing that sound, anything that sounds like that little pop, I have to be like, okay, Nick, (laughs) bring it down because this is not happening right now. Like it's, I know that it's literally just a sound from my past and I can move past that. So just acknowledge it and move past it. Um... I don't think I have a trigger that is a taste. Um, so that's good. But identifying your triggers, it could be anything. But when you start to feel like you have anxiety, 
think about what just happened. Think about anything in the last 24 to 48 hours that may have happened or remind you of your childhood trauma or adult trauma, whatever it was that you went through. And just try to put the pieces together in your head. I promise you, once you're able to do that, your panic attacks will start getting fewer and fewer. Um, I had a really, really, really stressful day at work today. It seemed like everything that I touched was just bonkers. It just wasn't happening. And because I'm in finance, the end of the month was is tomorrow. And so my team, we were working really hard to get things done. And typically, if I have one of those days where the stress is really, really high, I have to remember when I get home that night to bring it down a notch, my anxiety. Because if I don't, I could have bad dreams. I could not sleep well. I know that stress is a trigger for my PTSD. So knowing that tonight when I go to get ready for bed, I ha- I will have a different nightly routine. So I might read instead of playing on my phone. Um, I don't do that a lot because I hate reading, as you all know. But, you know, I, I will try to do something that's a little bit more soothing than watching serial killer documentaries. However, I like serial killer documentaries. I would rather watch them than any Disney movie. And I don't know why. So I guess I'm just messed up like that. But so identifying your triggers. And if you, um, you know, there's books that you can get. I don't know any off the top of my head. There's, you know, all kinds of resources online, even on like um, TikTok or whatever. Just type in identifying trauma triggers. And I'm pretty sure that you can find ways to identify those. Okay. Number five, breaking the cycle. When, when I was able to tell Ryan that Tom abused me sexually, in that moment, I knew I would never abuse a child the way that I was abused ever. If anything, I would be super overprotective. And at that time, you know, I thought maybe I'd have my own kids, whatever, but I would not be repeating the cycle. So let me give you a little bit of an example. And this is speculation. This is not a proven thing. I just want to use it as an example because I think in my gut, I think this is truth, but it has never been verified or proven. So two of the people are no longer with us. So I have no way of finding out the real truth. Okay. That being said, the example is my mother and her father. Um, Like I said before, um, I love my family. And when I was in treatment, my mother's behavior over the years was really weird. 
And by that I mean, she seemed to turn a blind eye to a lot. You know, the fact that I was sexually active with my boyfriend at 16 years old, who was living in our home, she thought she could trust us. I'm like, really? Because that's kind of dumb. Because we're teenage, or I was a teenager and he was in, you know, he was older and, you know, the hormones were just flying around there. I don't, I don't know how she didn't know, but she said she trusted us, whatever, whatever that means. So an example of a cycle, um, my mother depended a lot financially on her father as an adult And by that, I mean any vehicle she needed, he would get her. And I don't mean like brand new vehicles. I mean, it would be like a vehicle that he just drove. He'd go get another vehicle and he would pass this one to her. She didn't have to pay for them. He gave them to her. Um, When I was 12 or 13 and we moved into his home because he moved to his mother's house because she had been ill, um... I found out later that my mother and Tom very seldom paid rent to live there. They were just expecting my grandfather to foot the bill financially. Anytime um, that my mother needed help financially, my granddad was there helping her. And it was getting a little bit ridiculous, honestly. So... You know, here I am as a mid-20-year-old, and I'm, I'm going through um, my own financial situations. You know, I'm, I'm buying a home. I have a car payment. You know, I've got student loans and all of this, and I'm expected to help my mother financially. Um, I don't really know why she expected me to help her, but she did, her and my brother. So moving forward a little bit, During therapy, I didn't understand why my granddad helped her so much. And it was brought to my attention that possibly there was abuse in my mother's younger years. And the financial support he was giving her was quote-unquote guilt money. And I don't know if that's true because he said things to me Um, as an adult, you know, like family's supposed to help family no matter what. Yeah. But when they're freaking taking advantage of you, they're using your credit card, which was supposed to be for emergencies. They're using it to go to freaking Taco Bell twice a day and to go out drinking and get a haircut. And you know, it's not free money. And they, my mother used this credit card as free money. I would never do that to my dad. So I didn't understand why she felt it was okay to to behave this way. Guilt money is a possibility. You know, she was like, well, and I I asked her uh, years later in life um, if she had any memories of being abused. And she said, no, if I was, I must have blocked it out. And that is a big possibility. Um, I don't know. Uh, so breaking the cycle. Well, the cycle is she was abused. 
she continued the cycle by bringing abusive men into our lives. Therefore, I was abused many times over. Now, had I not gotten treatment, had I not turned Tom in to the authorities, things like that, I had children, most likely, if the cycle continued, my children would be sexually abused by my spouse. That is the cycle. You know, one person gets abused, they don't understand that the person that they're with is very similar to their abuser. Therefore, their children are getting abused. And then they don't get treatment. Their children are abused. Another cycle example, Tom. Tom admittedly was abused by his own father, and he never sought treatment. Therefore, what did he do to me? He did the same things to me that his father did, only it was a lot more manipulative. So much more. It wasn't just physical sex. It was the mental mind twisted thing. (laughs) I almost slipped a little bit because I used to call it mind effing, you know, use the F word, because it's literally what it was. Um, But breaking the cycle, I broke that cycle so that no one after me in my downline, generational downline, whatever. I'm not, I don't have children, but I will not ever do that to a child, period. I know that. So I broke that cycle. Tom and my mother did not break the cycle of abuse that they went through. Therefore, I had to suffer and go through that abuse. I will not let that happen to my children or my stepchildren or my niece or nephew. That's it. Okay. Breaking the cycle. You can also Google that because there's a lot of different examples. Um, I only have about 20 minutes or so left. So number six is alternative treatments. I don't really have a great example on that other than, you know, if you don't feel like you need to reach out to a a psychologist or psychiatrist or a support group and you just want to do these things on your own, you can do meditation treatment. You can do um, even acupuncture, I think, is something that helps with physical trauma. Um, You could do, I think there's even like a hydrotherapy. I don't know. I don't know. I've never done that. Um, But there are lots of other things. You could could read self-help books. You could listen to podcasts like mine and (laughs) you know you can relate to someone who has been through trauma and maybe apply what they did to help themselves help you so that would be an example of an alternative alternative treatment excuse me um number seven depression and anxiety I'm pretty confident that the person listening to this, if you have been abused, you suffer from depression, anxiety, possibly PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you may have an eating disorder. You may be a gamble, like a, an, a um, you may have a gambling problem. You may have a shopping addiction. You may have a drug addiction. You may have, be an alcoholic. There are so many things that are side effects because of this abuse or trauma. For myself, 
depression, anxiety, and PTSD are the worst. And obesity. Um, I blame the, ob- the, uh, the trauma on the... Hold on. <laughs> I blame the obesity being a side effect because, <clears throat> as I said earlier, I was a chubby kid. But I do believe that I would have grown out of that, like a lot of other kids do. But because of the abuse, I turned to food. I turned to things that tasted good, things that made me happy, and things that I could escape my physical pain. You know, and I'm not talking about the physical pain of the actual act of the sexual abuse, just the pain that you, and you know what I'm talking about. That pain of self-loathing, the pain of wondering why, the person abused you the way that they did and why they picked you. The pain of not being like everyone else that you think you're not like everyone else. Um, that stuff can really get you down. And I did um, a report or a presentation on the... The limbic system in the brain, it is back around your spinal cord and where it um, attaches to your your head, which there's like this little, I don't know, like a little baseball-sized area called the limbic system. And in there, there's your hypothalamus, your hippocampus, your thalamus, and your amygdala. I think that's right. Um. And your amygdala, I used to love saying that word because it just sounded funny, amygdala. (laughs) It is the size of an almond in your brain. And that sucker triggers your emotional stuff. So the presentation that I did was how your brain changes when you are sexually abused. And that amygdala holds on to that. And when it's triggered, it causes a, a reaction um, I don't really remember a lot about it. I know I got a, an A on the presentation because the teacher said that nobody had ever explained sexual trauma and the amygdala connection and like things like that. So she was pretty impressed with that. But it's very interesting how when I was going through college even, I was learning how to heal myself if that makes any sense. So depression and anxiety will be something that I will probably talk about in a whole episode later because it's such a big topic. Anxiety, I suffer from that. Um, I haven't had as bad of a time because I'm able to identify my triggers and process the grief. And I've had psychotherapy. You know, I'm able to work through that. Um, Another one, number eight, is spirituality. That was something that was a big, big deal for me because that relationship that I found with God and Christ was a love that I have never felt before, that unconditional love that no matter what you do, they love you. By they, I mean Christ and God. They love you. And when I finally made that connection and I allowed them to love me, it was pretty cool. You know, it really helped 
get through the other stuff, the yucky stuff. Because you have prayer, you can you can talk to your higher power. You have um, meditation, I guess. You can meditate and really... I don't know how meditation really works. I tried it as part of my treatment years ago, and I it just didn't work for me. So prayer was a big thing. You know, it was like that night that I had that three-hour-long panic attack. I was like, God, please just take my life. I can't handle this. But what really happened was God actually like took my pain and told me that it was okay to move past that pain. And I did. So, you know, I'm not trying to sound weird or I, and I would never try to push my religion on anybody, but that is what worked for me. Um, that relationship, whew, it needs some work now because I think I got a little bit carried away with just living my life and not making my relationship with God a priority after everything that, that he has done for me. I haven't made him a priority. And that is bad shame on me because that's not okay. Um, and if you have any questions about that part of it, please reach out to me. I'm not... By any means, I am not a uh, teacher of God, you know, of the Bible or anything like that. So, but I'm, I would love to, stop, Archie's being a little turd. I'm not gonna um, push anything on you. So I'm almost done and I think he knows that. Number nine, helping the next generation. That kind of goes back to breaking the cycle. Helping the next generation Like, I feel like I finally am at a place in my life where I can tell my story and I don't feel like people are going to judge me too much. (laughs) Um, And I feel like that I have been through the muck of it and I feel like I can help somebody and offer them just a little bit of hope and let them know that, you know, life can be really shitty and life can knock you flat on your ass. But with a little bit of work and determination, you can pick yourself up and you can move on to a much, much better place in life. Um, so helping the next generation is kind of something that I personally and just now getting to. Um, you know, I, I've given the, pres- the, the, the testimony at church I have um, written lots of papers on the subject. I actually had a girl at my church who wrote a paper about me for one of her classes. And, you know, I was able to tell my story in a brief way. And, you know, she found out things about me that she didn't know. And that's great because it kind of, at that time, it made us a little bit closer. Um. So helping the next generation is really important when you experience trauma and you can see when things happen to other people, I think, and you can encourage them, you can offer advice. Obviously, they don't have to take it, but you can offer it because you've been through it and that is your 
contribution to helping someone else get through the trauma. Uh, last one, number 10, and this one could be a doozy. Um, it's let go if you can. Letting go of the trauma and the abuse and the life that you led at that time. Because that abuse, it took me a really long time not to offer that up as almost like a confession when I was meeting people. By, for example, um, uh, people that I met, in, men that I tried to date, that was one of the things that I would tell them. Yeah, I went through this abuse and yada, yada, yada. Because I felt like if they could accept that, that they would like me, you know, if they, they would like me re- regardless of the abuse. Now, uh, some people are just like, whoa, that's too much information. And then I knew, okay, I can't share this with this person, but whatever. So I felt like the abuse defined me, I guess. I felt like if I didn't tell somebody that I was in a new friendship or relationship with, that if they found out they would dump me like a sack of potatoes and wouldn't want anything to do with me. Because, and that is just because I felt like the abuse defined me. But it didn't, and it doesn't. Yes, I went through it, and I went through some really rough stuff. And I'm sure you have gone through some rough stuff too. But that doesn't mean that you are a bad person. And it doesn't mean that you can't pick yourself up by your bootstraps and kick the world's ass. You know, you can, if you want a job, start figuring out what you have to do to get that job. You know, if you want a certain type of lifestyle and you know you have to make more money, then kick kick ass and make the changes that you need to make at your job now so that you can move up and you can make more money. And you can have that lifestyle that you want. It took me um, a lot of encouragement um, from Beth and, you know, realizing that I am in control of my life. Tom doesn't control me. You know, the other abusers in my life don't control me. I do. And when you realize that, it's like, whew, the open road is much longer And it is right in front of you. And all you have to do is go for what you want. So that being said, if you're letting go of the bad stuff, you only have room for the good stuff. Now, don't let your guard down. Don't socialize with people that give you that that red flag feeling in your gut. Don't socialize with them because that means you have a gut reaction and you don't want to ignore that. So that is all that I have for today. Um, the 10, again, we're acknowledging what happened, psychotherapy, grief, identifying your triggers, breaking the cycle, alternative treatments, depression and anxiety, spirituality, helping the next generation and let go if you can. And that was from psychology today. Um, I am literally right down to the wire on time. So I'm going to shut this down for now. I hope that you have a great day. I hope that you learned something that you can use this week. And for the, you know, remainder of your treatment or your time. Um, And I just hope that you have a kick-ass day tomorrow. 
you get some good rest tonight and you wake up and you're ready to move past things tomorrow. Till next time.